0: Last week, Mozart's birthday. This week, Dr. Seuss's birthday. Did you know that? Let's pray. God, we're thinking now not only about how you've sustained us this week and the mercies that you've provided and the plans you have for our lives. We're thinking right now about the differences between those of us who live inside this church and those who are on the outside. We have those on the outside in mind this morning. Would you teach us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 15. I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're complete in knowledge and you're competent to instruct one another in all things. I've written quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." When we began our conversation the first of January, some of you remember, and today we end it, you remember back then we read Romans 12:1, when Paul said to the Christians, I beg you, I plead with you, I beseech you, each of you, that you present your own bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, acceptable to God. And now we read in chapter 15, Paul has the same idea in mind for the Gentiles, Now, Paul has not been quiet, silent, or even careful about his concern for the Gentiles. Begin at the beginning of Romans chapter 1. In the first five verses, you read the word Gentiles. Go all the way to the end in chapter 16. Within the last five verses of the letter, the Gentiles come up again. That's because Paul has the Gentiles as his goal, a purpose. He's intent on reaching the Gentiles. He's not been quiet about it. It's why he calls himself an apostle, to the Gentiles. Peter can be the apostle to the Christians. Paul was concerned about the Gentiles. It helps us keep things clear if we remember that when we read the word Gentile in the Bible, it not only has the connotations of the Old Testament, those who didn't pay tribute to the one God of Israel, those were called pagans or Gentiles, but now the New Testament idea, the very same word Gentiles is used for the nations the people, all people, the human race, the human family. So when we read Gentiles, we should think more generously and broadly than simply the pagans. Paul has the entire human race on his heart. Paul says he's spoken boldly. In the last few chapters, he has spoken boldly, and here, if you've been in church, we've had a bold conversation or two the last few weeks. In fact, so much so that some of you have said to myself and some of the other pastors, are things okay? Are there problems brewing that we don't know about? Is there something going on? Some of you have said that. Because of the things you're talking about. Well, you see, all we've done is we've, we've, we've swapped social realities for Paul. In the first century, Christians, it was festival days and the food they were eating. For us, we've been talking about worship wars and intergenerational conversations about the church of the future. We've swapped one situation out for another. But is there a new problem going on? Let me tell you, when I was interviewed by the board of this church more than a year ago now, that's so nice to say, more than a year ago, December 2004, when I sat with the church board, no one asked me. No one asked me to explain substitutionary atonement and my views on that. No one talked about if I if, could, I address the apocalyptic language of Daniel and Revelation. Not one person said, "When do you think God is coming back?" Can you speak of the nearness of the second coming? No one asked those those questions. Someone did ask, "What's your opinion on church music?" So, are these bold new topics? Is there something bubbling under the surface? No. Same issues, just the issues contemporary Christians talk about today. And this is how the Bible becomes helpful for us when we insert our issues where theirs theirs were. So we've been speaking boldly the last two or three weeks as Paul spoke boldly. When he did that, when he brought these bold conversations up front above the table... Do you think he did it so that people would get along better in the house churches? Do you think he did this so that, so that they would become more unified as the day of the Lord came near? Do you think Paul spoke boldly on these agendas because he wanted them to experience shalom and a peace community? Did he want them to be unified, to have the kind of unity that, that he, spoke about, he speaks about in all of his writings, Jew and Gentile and everyone together, everyone uh, the same, an inclusive community? Did he speak boldly? For these reasons, did he speak boldly because he just wanted them to get over quarreling over insignificant, ridiculous little things? No, he told us in chapter 15, the verse I just read, I've written to you boldly because I had the Gentiles on my heart. I have the entire human race on my heart, and what I'm hoping is that they'll become the same pleasing sacrifice to God that you and I are. Paul, ever the pastor with his eye on his churches all around the region, the empire, but also the evangelist, Paul cares about lost people. He continues in chapter 15, if we were to read it on through today, he talks about his passion, which is his aim, his goal, his intent on going after the Gentiles, and he says, I've done everything I can do here. He even goes so far as to say, I've preached the gospel fully. And now I'm ready to move on, for I want to go somewhere where they've not heard the name of Christ. I want to go somewhere and teach on my own now. You people, you know about Christ. I have somewhere else to go. He wants to take the story that we abbreviated, the first 11 chapters of Romans, when Paul dared to describe the indescribable mercy of grace. And it's application for all people of all times everywhere. And he ends that chapter 11 with, I don't know why and I don't know how. And it makes no sense to me why God loves us this much. Why God will never let us go. But it's so. We call that the good news, don't we? The gospel. Paul wants to take this now and go to the Gentiles. To the nations. To the entire human race. To all the people. This is because lost people matter. To Paul, It occurs to me as I study these passages that I don't spend that much time thinking about lost people. Now that's a little sombering. I think about you. I worry about you. I pray for you. But you already know the good news of this creator, this old, old story, the gospel, don't you? Do you spend much time thinking about lost people in the average week? Some people do. These are the people who become HMS Richards, aren't they? These are the JL Tuckers of the world. People who care about lost, people who have a spiritual gift for the lost. We call that those evangelists. They're evangelists at heart, and they care about lost people. Some, like our North American division president, John Snyder, and I've heard him speak several times, and if you have too, you've heard he always says what? I just want to tell people about Jesus, almost with that meter Every time I hear him. About a year ago, I listened to him at the union office where he was talking about his travels to Africa. When he said he got to Africa, they were doing a crusade there. He was sick and needed a doctor. They found him a doctor. The doctor took care of him, and he said to the doctor, Do you know Jesus? Well, he did by the time Elder Schneider was done with him. He converted him and he baptized him. And then he had a driver who drove him around the country for 10 days and a couple of days before the crusade ended. He said to the driver, you'll be there on the final night of the crusade, won't you? The driver said, well, I don't know. He said, well, you'll be there because I'm baptizing you. And he did. This is what Lee Strobel's called last night the unexpected adventure of the Christian life, didn't he? Evangelism, those of you who attended and he told also story after story of colleague and co-worker, atheist friends, unassuming bystanders, people working on the floor, even a man who simply was accompanying his wife to the platform so she could be baptized. And he just said to the man in the middle of the service, and by the way, have you accepted Christ? And he baptized him too. Lost people matter. And Lee Strobel's worked for years at that church that made that phrase popular the last 10 years or so. Lost people matter to God. My niece is 11 years old. She took her first solo airplane flight last year. When she told her Sabbath school teacher, I'm going to be flying to California, from Portland to California, the Sabbath school teacher quickly moved into a plan. She said, well, when you're on the airplane, you must witness. And my niece said, oh, okay. And the teacher told her how to do it. You'll get in your seat and you'll look to your left and right and you'll, you'll decide who are you going to talk to about Jesus and then you'll just ask them. And I'll be praying for you, her teacher told her. No pressure for an 11-year-old. But, and forget what we say to our children, don't talk to strangers, you've got to Witness. So she got on the airplane and buckled up her seatbelt in Alaska Airlines and she checked out her options on her right and on her left. And sometime in the middle of the flight, she turned to the gentleman and said, excuse me, have you heard about Jesus? And he said to her, I have. She said, okay, <laughs> done. Don't have to talk about Jesus the rest of the flight. Did it. If you're even a little bit like me, striking up a conversation about God with a total stranger doesn't come anywhere close to Lee Strobel's idea of an exciting adventure in the Christian life. Can I suggest one more option, add one more idea to the list? Worship evangelism. What happens when we gather here on Sabbath morning when people come into our sanctuary and they observe us? People come here who aren't committed to our God, who haven't made a decision about Jesus Christ, but they observe you and I. They watch what happens as the gospel goes into motion. As you and I experience the forgiveness and mercy that comes straight from the heart of God like a, like a healing balm. As we turn to one another and embrace one another in, in generosity and in compassion. It's what happens when, when in the sanctuary we call evil by its right name and we offer an alternative in the world. When they watch that we open the scriptures and allow them to change and transform our lives. It's what happens when we can't be silent about our good God, and that's what it means to glorify God. I can't keep silent. God is so good. And people come into the sanctuary, and they watch that happen, and almost by accident, you you become an evangelist. I become an evangelist. It's not as though we set out in church with a missionary intent, It's not as though we decided there must be an evangelistic dimension here. But something very much like that results. Almost evangelism by accident. Worship is evangelism. People are watching us every Sabbath morning. And some of you here this morning are watching us. Welcome. We hope you come back. We'd like to meet you again. And for those of us who call this home... Here's just two questions this morning. What do people see when they watch us? And secondly, what are you prepared to do to make more comfortable the stranger within our gates? What do people see? When they come into the sanctuary to watch us, are they seeing real people? Are they seeing broken people? Are they seeing hurting people? Are they seeing people who bring their real lives into the sanctuary and put it out there? Or are they seeing make-believe, sort of phony, dressed-up Christianity? Because unbelievers can spot a hypocrite a mile away. Just like, a, you know how a teenager or a junior high has a, just a nose for a phony? Don't try and fake a teenager. It's the same with people who, are, who haven't made a decision about God, an unbeliever, someone on the outside walking in. When they come in, what are they seeing? It would be a dangerous business for us to try to fool them. We don't want orchestrated piety. What are they seeing then? I'm reminded in the Gospels, Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story, you remember, where the two men are praying in the middle of the city, and one is supposed to be a very religious and pious and committed man, and supposedly the one we would look up to. And that man prays a prayer in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man. I thank you that I'm not like the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, even like the tax collector. And on this side is the tax collector who, by his occupation, is an evil man. And do you remember that very simple prayer he prays in chapter 18, verse 13? God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said these two men went home. One went home right with God and one went home. How is it we go home on Sabbath week after week? Have we been honest and real in the sanctuary? Because real faith witnesses, doesn't it? Haven't you watched people who talk, who bring their real life struggles into the sanctuary or into your conversation, and you watch as they pull and churn and as, as they tell you how God's healing touch in their life? Real faith witnesses, doesn't it? It's inspiring. It's hopeful. It makes us think maybe there's a chance for us too. Real faith. When Oliver Cromwell, England, when he decided in the early 16th century to have his portrait painted, you know he's an army man, he, he commissioned an artist who could paint him warts and all. Not that he was ugly, but he didn't want anything covered up. If you know anything about about the history, British history during that time period, there's a lot of warts. He just wanted to be seen, warts and all. So it is we come here, warts and all, broken people, hurting people, jealous people, egotistical people, sick people. That's who we are. I will confess to you that last night when I sat in the Lomolinda University Church and listened to that beautiful music, listened to the word being preached by Lee Strobel, It did my heart good. Every time a person stood up with a microphone to speak, the microphone was dead. And then there was sort of a ringing sound as each microphone came on the various times throughout the program. And then you just go, yes, it happens even at Loma Linda. (laughs) Beautiful sanctuary, $8 million church, all of us in the conference, we would love to worship in a church that beautiful, the Mother Church. They have dead microphones, too. And then the lyrics for the hymn came up. The very first song we sang, and the lyrics were off. Isn't that good news, gentlemen up in projection? They're going like this. And inside, we just go, yes, they mess up, too, because we're jealous, and we're envious, and we're covetous, and and that's the real stuff, and that's sick. But it's who I am, it might be who you are, it's what I bring into the sanctuary with me every Sabbath morning. So if I took a microphone and went around and and asked each of you about your weeks, I might hear stories of wounded relationships. I might hear that there's been lying or cheating. I might hear you've disappointed some people. I might hear that you feel far from God, that you're living with hostility, that you're jealous and egotistical like me. If I brought you a microphone today, you might even report that there's anger and violence in your home. A new report was published this week, Spectrum Online. Some of you read that already a survey of Seventh-day Adventist Christian homes in the Pacific Northwest and domestic violence, asking people to self-report. And this survey shows one in three Seventh-day Adventist women reporting spousal violence in their home. One in five men reporting spousal violence in their Seventh-day Adventist Christian home. There is not room for hypocrisy between these stained glass windows, friends, is there? This is just the real us. This is the broken, shattered people that we are. But the beauty is that we bring these shards in here on Sabbath morning, and we watch as God takes this mess, and he molds it, and and he offers up this perfect sacrifice to him. That's the beauty of it. And that's the power when someone else wanders in and watches us in our real faith situations. We become evangelists. What are people watching when they step into the sanctuary and see you and me? Are we being real? I told you two weeks ago my favorite preacher who I never get to hear preach, Billy Graham, From the time I was a little girl, though I never wanted to be a pastor, I was intrigued with this gentleman. I'd much rather stay home on a Saturday night and listen to a Billy Graham crusade than do just about anything. And as I've evaluated it, I think it's because I saw in this gentleman an honest, authentic, peaceable man who'd been transformed by the gospel. I look at his face and I just, even when he was talking about hell, I look at his face and I see a man who's at peace who seems genuine, who seems transformed. I feel like when I look at Billy Graham, what I see is what I get. When people look at you and I, do they get what they see? The second question, what might we have to do in order that the stranger within our gates, the unchurched, the gentile, the people, would be more at home here, it would be more comfortable that this might be an alternative that they would choose. In your Old Testament section of your Bible, there are many references to the alien or the stranger within the gate, and whenever the believer is involved in some activity with God, it's, it's an obligation that the alien or the stranger within their gate also has that very same opportunity and obligation. So it is, we read in the fourth commandment, when we take a Sabbath break, who else takes a Sabbath break? The stranger within our gates. When we go to offer a sacrifice on Mount Zion, the alien and the the stranger offers a sacrifice. What might we need to do that strangers, guests, would be more at home in our church? Now there are strangers and there are strangers. We got a little card in the offering plate a few weeks ago. Somebody wanting to join membership here. They filled out the card and Gave it to the church clerk. And for weeks, we've been trying to find this person. Apparently, Tom Cruise wants to join our church. It's pretty good. Tom Cruise wants to join the Calamasa Church. All the people would say? So, okay. Tithe is going to go up, isn't it? So, Arliss Fillman for weeks was working on Tom Cruise, who had a phone number, and finally she gave it to me, and we've decided it was a joke, because he doesn't exist. So, ha-ha, whoever did that. (laughs) There are strangers, and then there are strangers, some strangers we want. Now, be very honest here. You must be very honest here, because... I'm not the only one who's grown up Christian or Adventist Christian, but tell me as my instinct on at all that sometimes elitism masquerades in the sanctuary. Lost people matter to God, but we matter a little bit more. Separatism exists in the sanctuary. Some people call this the holy huddle. The holy huddle the exclusive citadel, and you know whether you're in or you're out, don't you? When you walk in, are you in the huddle or are you on the outside of the huddle? We know the inside language. We know what to expect. We were here first. We were Adventists first, the holy huddle. We are so much alike in this congregation. It's actually quite easy to be together, isn't it? In fact, if you survey all of the churches in our conference, this church is really an anomaly that way. We are so much alike We are one of the most homogeneous churches that exists in southeastern California. We look alike, we talk alike, we act alike, we sing alike, we pray alike, we fall asleep alike, we take our paychecks from the same institution. We do. We're polite, we're well-groomed, we're nicely dressed, we can afford to feed our families. It's easy to be at Cala We're so much alike. Monoculture, I call it. And you don't push me too far out of my boundaries or my comfort zone because I'm a lot like you. I've been looking at the church logo for a little more than a year. If you have a church bulletin, hold that up, would you? I studied this church logo for quite a while before I came to join you at this church. For here is Jesus our shepherd holding a polite, groomed, normal <laughs> sheep. No doubt Seventh Day Adventist I decided. <laughs> what happens if it if we were not only okay with but if we decided to encourage the alien and the stranger and the unchurched and the Gentiles to make this their home too. What happens if sometimes some sheep sneak in here who don't look like this? Some sheep not as nice as you, not as polite as me. Some sheep from other folds. Some sheep who don't know how to dress or talk. They don't clean up so nice. Some sheep who don't know how to feed their families and they don't know where to get a doctor. Some sheep that have annoying habits, dangerous habits, illegal habits. Some sheep that are diseased or contagious. Some sheep that are not like you. These sheep are time consuming. These sheep are embarrassing. These sheep take a lot of energy. These sheep don't help our reputation. We want quality sheep. We want Tom Cruise. <laughs> and then the word gets out, Tom Cruise comes to Cala Mesa and we get more quality sheep. And do and you know what? The truth is that that perception is not based in reality at all, is it? If I decide to go down that path, then I haven't understood at all what Paul was trying to write here in the book of Romans. It's a reality that doesn't exist, that the kingdom of God would, would have these, these borders and boundaries and exclusive communities, that there'd be separatism and elitism. That's all Paul tried to talk about for the first 11 chapters. The kingdom of the, God is, the kingdom of God includes the dirty sheep and the scruffy sheep and the sheep with the bad habits. God died for every sheep, didn't he? Jesus wants every sheep to be in heaven, doesn't he? And if I haven't figured that out, I better go back and study my letter to the Roman Christians again. Every sheep has access to God. What might we need to do? Might we need to make changes so that every sheep could feel comfortable here? Ah, so that you and I could feel comfortable with any sheep present. It is clear that the Apostle Paul knows that the scruffy sheep belong. He's a heart for the scruffy sheep, the nations, the people, everyone out there. We sang earlier this morning, let all creation, uh, let, uh, all creatures of our God and King lift up your voice and let, let us sing. All creatures, that's how Paul talked. Not just the Christians, not just the Roman Christians, not just the good ones in Corinth or somewhere. All creatures, everyone sings. That was Paul's idea not only the christians offer up themselves as a sacrifice but everyone everywhere eventually be offered up as a sacrifice so for paul he would have to go sheep shopping he would have to help us figure out how to be comfortable with those sheep wouldn't he are we prepared for that I've been driving around Kalamasa, Yucaipa, Banning, Beaumont, Cherry Valley. I drove around and took some pictures this week. as I've had my eye on this construction. it used to be 15 or 20,000 new homes. I don't even know the number anymore 20, 30, 40, 50,000 new homes. I don't even know what the count is now. But I drive around and I look at these homes where the people, the nations, the Gentiles are going to be living. And I wonder. Do they matter to us nestled here in this community, inside this neighborhood community where things have been going pretty good for 40 years? Can we just let community churches build up out there and take, take in these new members? Can we let somebody else worry about it? Might we have to make any adjustments? Oh, dare I say change. So might we even have to go after them and not wait for them to walk into the church so we can evangelize them? Do you have an eye on those buildings too? I'd love for you to drop me an email as our congregation will be moving towards a conversation again about our property and our building. For that conversation is surfacing, some decisions need to be made. I'd love to know what you think. Go to the church website and send an email to one of the pastors. Is it okay if we're just, if we're alike, monoculture is good, We'll just work at attracting the new young professionals who move into the community and we can be home for the students who come for four, six, eight years and and that's good, isn't it? That's respectable. We'll keep the academy going strong and and make sure the Spanish church gets its legs under it and that's good enough. Order those 30,000 homes, 50,000 homes. Do you have any instinct in you like the Apostle Paul? I gotta get out of here because you've heard about Christ but what about those people? Is this enough? I took my final trip to Washington, D.C. with 8th grade class. I've gone twice. Twice is enough, 45, 50 8th graders. It was, it was fine, but it's enough. We were in the capitol building, and you, you, you stop by for your traditional visit with the congressman, and he takes a picture with you, he or she. In our case, it's Jerry Lewis. And you take your tour of the building, and then you exit down underneath the building, down a very long hallway, probably three times the length of our aisle here. When you come into the Capitol building, as is every building in Washington, D.C., you have to leave all your belongings in a security area. This is post-9-11, so you take nothing in with you anymore. So I left my purse and and uh, everything except for a camera. You're allowed to take pictures. We're in the capitol building. We've seen everything. We're getting ready to exit. We come around the corner to go down this long hallway. These are very old buildings, beautiful dark wood floor. And as I turned the corner, I noticed that there were steps on one side of the hallway for people like myself who are able to go down steps, and there was a ramp on this side of the hallway for those who needed a ramp. But what was interesting about that was there was a plaque on the wall over here by the ramp, and this little plaque said, Handicap here, with an arrow. I thought, well, that's strange. Don't the handicapped know they need the ramp? Just questions. Nobody put a sign and said, you know, able-bodied here. I thought, well, that's a little bizarre. And so I watched and just kind of, Well, it looks like maybe they made adaptations to the building because it's so old and, you know, the regulations. And my party was moving down the hallway, all 60, 70, 80 of us. So I decided to take a picture of the plaque on the wall because I like to record these strange things. Took a picture of the wall and I began down the hallway. There was a security officer who said, Excuse me, what are you doing? I didn't think he was talking to me. So I just kept walking. But pretty soon he spoke loudly and clapped his hands. Lady, what are you doing? I said, are you talking to me? He said, yes, what were you doing? Taking a picture. You're allowed to take pictures in this building. Yes, you are, but why are you taking a picture of that? I said, because I think it's interesting. Why, why would you put a sign there? So I told him my whole story. Why, why would you put a sign there and nothing here? And don't you think the handicapped know they need a ramp? And that's interesting. And he's, he said, but why would you take a picture of it? <laughs> I said, well, I take pictures of things like this from time to time. I'm a pastor. I preach. You know, I like to observe life. You just never know when something you see could come in handy when it, it makes a point in church. And he said, yes, but what are you going to do with that picture? (laughs) I I have no idea, sir, what I'm going to do with that picture. I'll know when I know, but I don't know right now. Well, he got busy with someone, and so I moved about halfway down the hall. My party is at the end of the hallway now, and I realize I don't know where we're going next, and I need to get out. He did whatever he was doing with someone else, and pretty soon he was halfway down after me again. He said, come back here. What are you going to do with that picture? I said, well, I don't know. He said, if you could just give me an example of what you would do with this picture, it would make it easy to understand why you took the picture, and then I can let you go. <laughs> if I knew what I was going to do with the picture, I would tell you, but I honestly don't know. I'm going to use it sometime, somewhere. Well, he says, can I see your camera? And I handed him my camera, and he said, I'd like to see some identification. Well, where is all of my identification? Up in the security. He, he wants me to prove that I'm really a pastor. So I say, I have credentials. I'll show you. No, I don't have credentials. They're up in the tent. Let me see your camera. And he begins to open my camera. He says, may I look at your pictures? Yes, you may. And he begins to talk as he's flipping through my pictures. He says, you know, it's just that I go to church and I can't imagine what you'd do with that picture. <laughs> we are trained to watch for the peculiar, the peculiar and the odd. And what you did was peculiar, he told me. (laughs) It was not funny when it was happening (laughs) because my kid's gone and my party's gone and he wants to talk to the responsible adult, who it's obviously not me. The principal's gone, and he's now scanning my photos. Wouldn't you know, blessing beyond blessing, that on my camera were a bunch of peculiar photos. <laughs> I had not taken photos off from our trip to South Africa, where we visited, among other places, Robben Island. And when we were on Robben Island, I took pictures of every poster sign, the menu board where, where Nelson Mandela ate. It was a picture after picture of signs, actually, for several in a row. And he nodded his head and he handed his camera back to me. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll let you go. But you just need to know what you did was peculiar. <laughs> that was his word. I wish Officer Curtis was here today so he could know what would happen to the story. Because as I left the building, exited, all I could hear was peculiar, peculiar. You are peculiar. Peculiar. And I thought, he doesn't know I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and I know what peculiar means. (laughs) Peculiar, were you not raised with that word? To be a peculiar people, it's a sermon title, Ellen White, 1885, Copenhagen. Denmark, you're to be a peculiar people. It comes from Titus chapter 2. And I always thought, and maybe you did too, you're supposed to be strange and weird and distinct and unusual and not in the world, not in it but not of it, and different so that when people see you're peculiar, they'll be attracted to you. Peculiar, that's what I thought it meant. Go back and read Titus 2. Because peculiar is God's label for covenant people. Peculiar isn't what I do or what you do. It's what God does when he covenants with us and we become his peculiar covenant people. You see the difference? But I wonder, being peculiar and distinct, we worship on Sabbath, not Sunday. We're generous. We're caring. We're involved in the medical center and the university's commitments. We go overseas. We contribute more of our time and finances than most anyone, anywhere. We're peculiar. Is it enough to be peculiar? nestled right here in this community and the people will be attracted to us because we're peculiar or might I need just a little bit more of the passion of the Apostle Paul who says there are people out there there are Gentiles there's the human family there are all the nations and they're not very far from us folks they're just a few miles they haven't heard the word of Christ yet. They need to hear it. Does that matter to you? Do lost people matter to us at Calamesa? What do they see when they come here? What might we want to change or think about if they were to be at home here? Lost people matter to God. So indeed they do matter to me. May that be so for all of us. Amen. receive the offering now I invite you to pray as we do that tithes and offerings God our soul is still before you just now we know that you're on our side we know that you're also on the side of all creation and all humanity down through the ages even today no matter what these sheep look like they belong to you Accept these offerings now as one part of our response that we know you are Lord of all creation, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. to stand would you as we pray Now to the one holy perfect God the creator of our universe to that God who calls us each to a mission and a purpose to the one who calls us to offer our lives as a holy sacrifice to that God be all glory and honor, and majesty, and power forever and ever. In the name of Jesus, amen.